Good morning and welcome to Visionaries. I'm John LaBelle, your host, and you'll find us here on the Progressive Radio Network at prn.fm every Monday at 10 a.m. Eastern U.S. time. But since we're global, could be any time in your part of the world. So just uh, check so you'd be sure to catch us. And if you miss us, all of our back shows are online. You can download our app to your Android or iPhone and <clears throat> find back shows there or go to visionaries.podbean, P-O-D-B-E-A-N.com, and you can find all my back shows there. And you can uh, reach us on the phone. Let's get some call-ins here. Hello, uh, 888-874-8255. So that's for call-ins. And anybody uh, uh, following Jordan B. Peterson? So I uh, (laughs) was tempted to say read, but I can't read anymore. So I listen to books. And, you know, I I read in bed and I say, should I read this book or watch – rerun of Big Bang Theory. So I watch a rerun of Big Bang Theory and don't read the book. I have lectured on cruise ships and I'm looking forward to getting a gig where we cross the Atlantic. So it's like, you know, six days with no ports. (laughs) So I actually might read a book or two. So uh, Peterson is probably the hottest figure out there at the moment in a lot of ways. He wrote a book, 12 Rules for Life, An Anecdote to Chaos. And uh, he he presents a mixture of uh, psychological self-help, attacks on political creative, uh, political correctness, and a attack on totalitarianism culturally and politically from the left and from the right. And he's really smart. So, you know, when he talks about ideas, he cites the studies. Um, And, uh, you know, they're just there. And a lot of his opponents don't like the studies, so they attack him. But I'm hoping to get Peterson on the show. He's one of the most in-demand figures at the moment is lecturing all over the world, doing big book promotions, books, monster theaters for his uh, his book promotions. And anybody reading Peterson, one of the fun things about Peterson is starting years ago, he started putting his lectures both in class. He's a professor of psychology and ones that he does especially on YouTube. So there's a whole universe of these lectures. What I do, what I was doing on the bus over here this morning, if you're in New York, bring a large umbrella. <laughs> I have one of those full, small folding things, you know, that folds up 
you can easily stick it in your backpack, and it wasn't enough. My pants are all wet. Uh, fortunately, I wore rubber boots, but uh, it is wet out there. Anyway, uh, oh, and new thing. If you call, let me know if you've seen it. But for the first time, my bus, had regular New York City bus, had a plug-in for charging my phone. So I was able to not only listen to YouTube and uh, play solitaire because I have attention deficit disorder, but I could put the uh, <laughs> I could put the map feature on and f- see where the bus was because I couldn't see out the windows due to the due to the rain. Anyway, uh, so I'm going to talk today about some of the books I've been reading, and I look forward to hearing from others what to read. And last night I was at an interesting dinner. It was an event that my wife was involved with. She's a opera singer and music teacher, and there was a, a, a musical competition event that she was involved with. And the hostess uh, took us all out to dinner afterwards in a very nice restaurant, got the back room, so we had a whole room to ourselves and about 20 people. And I was sitting next to, don't even remember his name, a young man who's a musician, composer, lyricist, music producer, does composes music for movies. And our discussion got around to um, Peterson. And it was interesting why he's so popular at the moment. And I'm noticing people who are not don't have my background, you know, haven't read what I've read. And so, um, not that I was alive when Freud was alive, but I was in high school, you know, I read Freud, later read a bit of Carl Jung, I've read most of Joseph Campbell, and <clears throat> so there's, and a very important book influential on me was Oswald Spengler's Decline of the West, which was introduced to me in two different courses when I was in school, one a political science course and one a history of cities course. And Spengler has a unique approach to history in which he does not see a linear progression from, you know, uh, primitive, ancient, Egyptian, Greece and Rome, the Middle Ages, Renaissance, modernism, which is how, uh, despite all of our efforts, <laughs> pretty much uh, how we teach it uh, in my school today, uh, history, history of architecture, we have a lot of non-Western material. But the problem is always, where do you put it? How does it relate to the Western material? But Spengler sees totally independent cultures. And the West, uh, Europe and America, have a culture that begins around 1000 AD and is sort of today running out of gas. And it is distinct from the biblical Middle Eastern cultures. It's distinct from Greco-Roman culture and, of course, distinct from Indian or Chinese culture. And for Spengler, each culture has a, an arc of its life cycle. And in addition, it, each culture has what he calls a prime symbol. 
was basically an inner psychology, what it's all about. And in looking at Western culture, I like to open with the Gothic Cathedral, and there's some particularly great images you can get off of uh, off of Google Image to put into one's PowerPoint, which I do. And not supposed to do that, but what the hell. Uh, and you're looking up at the vaulting of a Gothic cathedral, and I like to say, uh, standing in the nave of a Gothic cathedral and looking up, it's evident that it will be the descendants of the people who built this who will circle the globe and go out into space. In other words, uh, the culture is signaling early in its very beginning uh, what its, um, oh, how to put it, prime symbol is, its psychological orientation, its notion of how it engages larger reality. And so, you know, a culture begins by laying down its epic poem and its temple form. And a temple form indicates the kind of spatio-temple temporal um, mobility that the people of the culture are going to have both literally and metaphorically. Anyway, that's Spengler. And so, you know, having coming from that tradition, Jordan P. B. Peterson is, yeah, like, yeah. Uh, you know, he's amplifying, building on some of that. And <clears throat> the people I encountered today haven't read uh, Campbell, Jung, and uh, or even Freud, and Spengler. So uh, don't see it the way I do. Anyway, uh, I was sitting next to this interesting fellow, and we were exchanging recommendations for books, and he observed that um, there used to be a more, oh, how should we say, unified source of where you got your ideas. Pardon me, like the New York Times. And, you know, if you came from an intellectual family, of course you got the New York Times, but you'd also read The Nation and The New Republic. And so, you know, you'd be in touch with a wider world. And as a already kid in high school, I discovered The Village Voice through Gene Shepard. Uh, Gene Shepard was this uh, radio, pioneering radio talk figure. He would do, if you listen on um, Progressive Radio Network, and some of the people have shows that ramble, <laughs> like yours truly, uh, were influenced by Gene Shepard. Mike Fader, one of my favorite shows on the station, you can catch a show here on WBAI, is in the Gene Shepard tradition. And so Shepard would put me in touch with stuff that they didn't tell me about in school, you know, like haiku poems. Robert W. Service, The Village Voice, Sports Cars, and uh, blues singers like Jimmy Yancey and Cripple Clarence Lofton. I'd take a train into the city and go to Sam Goody's <laughs> and get their records, uh, which would be the one place probably in the country where you could get their records. There's no internet, you know, there's no Apple Music or Spotify to get your music from. So you had to go to... Uh, uh, a record store that had a lot of uh, stuff, and I could find it. And now I've got it all that kind of stuff, you know, my memorabilia channels on my phone. I can I can get Cripple Clarence Lofton and Jimmy Yancey 
and listen to them anytime. Anyway, uh, so, you know, where do we get ideas for what to read next? So hopefully from what I'm talking about today, you might be turned on by something. So a book I mentioned, uh, I finished it a couple of weeks ago, Enlightenment Now by Steven Pinker. And Steven Pinker is a, um, well, I want to try to stay away from politics, but shall we say a classical liberal who um, is in trouble with contemporary liberals because he wrote a book called The Blank Slate. And mm, a lot of contemporary thought holds that the mind is a black slate blank slate and is formed by socialization. So, uh, you know, uh, if little girls were brought up wearing blue and playing with trucks and little boys were brought up wearing pink and playing with dolls, boys would grow up to act like girls and vice versa. So that's the contemporary theory. And mountains of psychological studies question that, but that's the political dogma. So Pinker questions that, and he presents the studies. And so now he's persona non grata in uh, progressive circles. But anyway, his book, Enlightenment Now, looks at how, pardon my putting it this way, things have gotten better. (laughs) I mentioned a while back, one of my shows is on a lecture I did. I'm part of a seminar at Columbia University, and it uh, deals with technology. And almost all the lectures are pessimistic, you know, about privacy and hacking and global warming and uh, on and on. It's all, you know, all negative. And, you know, I'm aware of those problems, but that's not the whole picture. So I asked the, um, the... people running the seminar, if I could do a lecture on technological optimism. So they said, yes. Oh, if you're interested, if you put John Lobel, technological optimism seven, <laughs> you don't need the seven, but uh, in YouTube, you'll find that lecture. And Pinker is making a similar point. What he's talking about is uh, two different but related things. One is how things have gotten better in the past 200 years. And if you, ah, 250, uh, so if you go back to 1750, suddenly everything started to take off. Science, technology, uh, better forms of agriculture, medicine. uh, It all started to percolate. And... Uh, you know, maybe a lot of people saw only minor improvements up till the mid-20th century, but since the mid-20th century, they've just been skyrocketing in improvement. And uh, that's not what we're told. You know, I asked my students, and they've been told things are getting worse. And uh, you know, one of the things they're told is that income inequality is getting worse. Absolutely correct. However, despite that, the plight of the 
poorest of the poor has gotten a lot better. So, and particularly in the past 20 years, when we've told things have stagnated, they haven't. So worldwide, a billion people came out of abject less than a dollar a day poverty into, you know, whatever you want to call it, lower middle class of real lives. And this leads to like a doubling of the lifespan, a 90% drop in infant mortality. So Steven Pinker's book is filled with graphs presenting this. And since he's a prominent intellectual, if you were to say, who are the, whatever, 20 hot intellectuals of the of the moment, he would be in almost all lists. And, you know, so he's on C-SPAN books. Um, he lectures everywhere. It's, you know, same lecture that he gives there on YouTube. But he, of course, was asked to give a talk at TED, T-E-D, which used to stand for Technology, Entertainment, Design, founded by a schoolmate of mine, uh, Ricky Saul Orman, and now run by Chris Anderson. And uh, I have my problems with TED. You know, it's moved from a strong technological focus to, and I'll use a phrase here that'll only reverberate for older people, but it's become sort of psychology today. So Psychology Today was a magazine very prominent in the 1970s and 80s that was applying psychological findings to everyday life. And so pop psychology. And I think a lot of TED has that quality. But anyway, Pinker gave his lecture about how everything's getting better. And he, he, he presents quite a bit of detail in his book about the bad stuff. Uh, CO2, global warming, income inequality, and general pollution, and uh, the threat of nuclear war. So those are all bad and still out there. But <clears throat> looking at them... In a broader context, you know, he, he, he doesn't pull any punches. There's a lot of bad stuff. But then looking in some larger context, uh, yes, uh, CO2 is going to continue to rise. It's not good. But other pollutions have dropped like 80 and 90 percent in developed countries. And may it's getting worse in China, but may soon start to improve in China, uh, maybe someday even in India. And you know, the, a lot of problems with the automobile. But uh, looking back, horses were not necessarily better. The streets in New York were piled with horse manure. There was as many horses as there was people. And that's not good. Uh, there were mountains around New York of horse manure that they tried to cart it out of the city. And people would, leave, you know, I, I remember today there are no abandoned cars at least in, not in New York. And I, I, I think I, that's supposed to come from the fact that a car can be recycled. They can use the steel. So a car has value. So someone's going to tow it away, and it'll pay for itself. Whereas in the 70s, there were – my school was in a bad neighborhood, which is now you can't afford. <laughs> but it was a bad neighborhood then. Should have bought real estate. But anyway, um, the – 
there were abandoned cars all over the block where my school was. And, you know, kids would eventually the doors would disappear and then the the there'd be a fire in the car and the upholstery would be burnt out and the kids would play in it and it would accumulate garbage. And, you know, maybe after five years it would get towed or not. And <clears throat> so there were also abandoned dead horses <laughs> before there were cars. You know, people, your horse fell over dead. You want to spend the money to get it carted away or just pretend, you know, it wasn't yours. So a lot of this stuff is getting a lot better. New York's air is so much more clean than it was 50 years ago, 40 years ago, which to me isn't that long ago. Uh, I've been teaching for 50 years, so um, to me it's all recent. And so a Pinker goes into that, and he, and he says, yeah, you know, the threat of nuclear war is uh, it'd be pretty bad, but there's been an 80% drop in the number of nuclear weapons out there. So the accidental, the like, likelihood of accidental whatever is hopefully less. And war itself, there's been a huge drop over the past 100 years of deaths from war. And you say, well, how could that be? You know, World War I, World War II, um, and the war's going on all over now. Well, they're not, the war's going on all over now, as bad as they are, not like World War I and World War II. Um, so anyway, Pinker's book is filled with these, uh, oh, what's it called? Human Progress. Uh, there's a website, I think it's called humanprogress.com. I just uh, identified it. You know, I just I just linked to their Twitter feed and stuff like that. But they keep track of this. You know that that things are getting better. That a billion people, uh, many of them in in China and some of them in Asia, have come out of just come out of abject poverty in the past twenty years. I mean, poof, just like that. And so. Pinker documents all this in great detail and, from my knowledge of the field, totally fairly. In other words, you know, he presents uh, where things haven't gone well, he, he presents it. And he gives a TED Talk, and I see this morning on Twitter links to—I've never seen this before, but TED had about 10 of their regulars— viciously attack Pinker's presentation. I've never seen this with, I mean, maybe it happens and I haven't seen it, but I've never seen this with any other TED presentation that it, people are so upset that Pinker is demonstrating that things are getting better. Wealth, life expectancy, health, infant mortality, maternal mortality, uh, on and on and on. The poorest people in the United States, for the most part, have hot and cold running water. I mean, sometimes they don't. In New York City, public housing doesn't keep up on its repairs the way it should. But for the most part, you know, most people have a smartphone, have access to the Internet. Um, government programs will help you get one if you can't otherwise afford one. Nobody had that 20 years ago. Nobody had a smartphone. They didn't exist. 
Uh, and, you know, when, you know, the whole story, when the, the first mobile phone developed by Motorola was $4,000, and very few people could afford that, and it was the size of a brick. <laughs> and uh, the... So I remember those phones. Oh, the you know the next generation. My wife uh, got one, so she had one. Then eventually they got real small and convenient. I got one, but very few people had mobile phones. Now, in the United States, what is it? I pick a number. Ninety percent of people have not just a mobile phone but a smartphone. Get on the internet, and you go to a poor continent like Africa. Two thirds of the people in Africa have. Uh, phones, um, mobile phones. So it's getting better. And they just can't stand that, that Steven Pinker has pointed that out. And the attacks were so ad hominem and vicious and just wrongheaded, uh, you know, that he is accuse him of uh, relying on science and vicious attacks on science that science is not the only form of knowledge. Science doesn't take, science uh, is objective and doesn't take into account one subjectivity. Like, what, what does that mean? That if I don't like it, it's not true? <laughs> if you can, somebody presents a scientific study, <clears throat> you think there's something wrong with it, assuming you're, have the resources at a university, you do a scientific study and say, I don't get those results. I think there's something wrong. Um, and science doesn't always work as well as it should that way. You know, between 40 and 90 percent of studies, depending upon the field, can't be replicated, but that means uh, 10 to 60 percent can be. And eventually, you know, it gets to something that people agree on. We're not sure yet. Well, our carbs bad, our proteins bad, our vitamins bad, our fats bad. Well, <laughs> maybe something. Actually, they probably never have an answer for that, because it probably depends on the individual and the kind of food and uh, that kind of thing. But, um, pardon me, I thought I turned my phone off. So, anyway, um, the attacks on Pinker on this TED, uh, I guess it's on their website. I have to go look. I saw it through Twitter. You know, I just clicked on the link. Uh, are really amazing. Uh, Albert Einstein, uh, Germany didn't like his relativity science and organized 100 leading physicists to say that Einstein was wrong. And Einstein's response was, if I were wrong, they'd only need one. <laughs> but anyway, uh, go look that up. So Steven Pinker, Enlightenment Now, and and then go look, um, see if you can find on the TED website the links to the attacks on him and his talk. Just amazing. So I want to talk about some some other books, I, I'm hesitant about uh, about some of them uh, 
actually, as I've described, I don't read very many books. I listen to them. And I'm just finishing Walter Isaacson's Leonardo da Vinci. So I listened to his Einstein, and now it becomes, um, you know, am I going to listen to his Steve Jobs book? And I am so upset about Steve Jobs' death that I don't know if I can listen, you know, read or listen to a biography. We'll see. But he did a book on Benjamin Franklin. And Benjamin Franklin, such a wonderful seminal figure, you know. He's, uh, whether it's pop psychology, cryonics that I'm involved with, he uh, commented on that. Uh, we still use some of his dis- uh, discoveries and principles of electricity and understanding electricity, his uh, pop psychology, yeah, on and on. So uh, what a figure. So maybe I'll do that next. But Walter Isaacson's book on Leonardo da Vinci is really fantastic. I haven't read others, so I can't really compare. But da Vinci is someone who um, I grew up in an art-oriented household. We had a monster two-volume notebooks of Leonardo da Vinci that my father had, and I would go through those. And I didn't read much of them, but look at those incredible drawings of anatomy of nature, of machines, war machines, flying machines. So that was sort of the image in my mind of Leonardo da Vinci. And then there's a particular self-portrait that he did later in life with a a long, wispy beard and long-haired gray hair and wrinkled features. And that's sort of the image that was in my mind of da Vinci. And in this book, we go through his entire life. So uh, when he was young, da Vinci was beautiful, muscular, uh, dressed colorfully, was the best lute player in Florence, uh, wrote poems, plays, put on theatrical productions, on and on. And that, you know, so that's not the dour picture that I had of Leonardo da Vinci. And then you go on to, of course, you know, he was an engineer and did war machines and fortifications and architecture. But then you go on and studies of nature and vortices of water. How does water move through a stream? You know, it's not just a straight linear thing. There are vortices at the edges and the friction of the edge and then the friction of the disturbed water on the water closer to the center. And he did studies of all this and didn't have the high-powered mathematics we have, but made observations, some of which haven't been reproduced to this day. He figured out that one of the valves of the heart closes, not due to back pressure, but due to a swirling vortice. He had made glass models of hearts to study Uh, how this would work. And it was only in the past about 20 years that that's been confirmed. Oh, my God, he was right. You know, we were wrong all these years. And then a lot of his work was not influential because he didn't publish. And 
you know, there's no books by Leonardo da Vinci. There's no treatises. It was all in his notebooks. And he'd say, I'm planning to do a book on anatomy. I'm planning to do a book on astronomy. And he was a famous, uh, whatever, procrastinator, didn't finish things. Mona Lisa, he carried with him. The, the guy who commissioned it of his wife never got it because Leonardo wouldn't give it up. He kept working of 16 years. Oh, I want to add a little bit here. And carried her with him as he he moved around from uh, position to position and uh, brought his goods with him, including several paintings that he never gave up and continued to work on. So anyway, I'm getting toward the end of the book, and he's going to die soon. So I don't, I don't like it when they die. Um, I always get choked up. So, But uh, I think Leonardo actually did die. Uh, I don't think we can escape that. So um, that's a couple of books that I'm still in the middle of and, and or just finished as a case of enlightenment now. And I've downloaded a bunch more. I just started one on the, the what is it, The World is Not What You Think on quantum theory. So I'll tell you more about that when I get further through it. But I've been going through these books, and I figured I'd tell you about a couple more. Uh, way down on my list for, when did I go? Oh, 2015. Time flies. You know, I'll get around to reading a book, and I go to write a review on Amazon, and like, does anybody care? Uh, you know, that book's from three years ago. Well, I care. I kind of stay current on books. You know, they, they stay with me. I don't read book. I don't necessarily read a book when it comes out, so much as and, and then it sticks with me. I'll refer back to it uh, years later. Uh, so, one of my favorite figures is David Deutsch, and David Deutsch is uh, let's see, I think he's is an Israeli Englishman, and <clears throat> so he's at I think Cambridge University. And he's one of the pioneers of quantum computing. And he wrote a book called The Fabric of Reality, which is already about 20 years old. And it was, uh, you know, some people I knew <laughs> were reading it at the time. And he was trying to put together a notion of reality based on relativity, quantum theory, evolution, and Karl Popper's notion of science, one other thing, that these are the most important fundamental ideas and how do they become unified. In the beginning of infinity, um, well, first of all, uh, he developed some of the algorithms that show that quantum computing is possible. So he's a major pioneering figure in quantum computing, and he says, I, I once practically invented it. Now there's so much going on, I can't even keep track of it, uh, you know, in the field. But he's got a great way of stating his position on quantum theory coming from quantum computing. So a quantum computer, if we could make one of a substantial number of qubits, so a qubit is like a bit, but a quantum bit. And a bit is either on or off. 
and a qubit is neither on nor off till we look at it, and it, and can actually be in all possible positions. So that can make a very powerful computer. As I understand it, in my limited way, if you had a telephone book with a million listings, and they were in random order, and you wanted to find John LaBelle's phone number, on average, your computer would have to look at half a million names uh, before statistically half, you know, it'll come across John LaBelle after a half a million looks. Worst case scenario, it'll, it'll Best case scenario would be the first name. Worst case scenario would be the last name. We're assuming it's not alphabetical. But your cursor, in effect, can only look in one place at one time. And if it can do a million a second, it'd take a half a second to look at all half million. But a quantum cursor could look at all million names in one shot. And, well, how does that work? Well, because reality is very different than we think it is, (laughs) in the quantum world anyway. And so this could make unbelievably powerful computers. One of the things they're worried about is that all security is done with encryption. You know, like you get access to your uh, Citibank bank account, but nobody else does, hopefully, and is protected by encryption. Well, that encryption is done with prime numbers uh, that are multi- multiplied and divided, and a computer could crack that encryption. It could do that division of the uh, prime numbers. But uh, if you took half the world's computers, it would still take them a 1,000 years to crack your Citibank bank account. So it's reasonably secure. A uh, modestly robust quantum computer could do it in three seconds <laughs> or something like that. So they're worried. <laughs> On the one hand, they're working like crazy to get this quantum computer. And people who worry about that kind of thing say, if China gets it first, we're permanently left behind. And um, uh, Google... And Amazon and IBM and Microsoft are all in this huge race to be the first to get a robust quantum computer. They can make simple ones, but the simple ones they can make can't do any better than a standard computer. But they think this year they'll have robust ones that can go much further. Well, before I go on with David Deutsch, just a reminder, I'm John LaBelle. This is Visionaries. We're at prn.fm every Monday at 10 a.m. And you can catch all of our back shows on visionaries.podbean.com. And you can download our app for iPhone and Android. So go to your app store and you can get that. So I was talking about David Deutsch, who uh, takes this fun position that uh, oh, so how does this quantum computer work? I didn't get to that. And what, what, so what I, when, when the electron could go through either of two slits in a, you know, in a piece of aluminum foil to hit the target, 
And which one does it go through? Well, uh, if we look at it, it goes through the left or the right one. But if we're not looking at it, it goes through both or neither. Uh, so, you know, very irrational world out there. And how does it do that? Well, uh, one of them involves parallel universes. When the electron gets to the two slits in one universe, ours, it goes through one slit, and in another universe it goes through another slit. And so that's uh, the many worlds theory of quantum theory. And um, David Deutsch is a big proponent of that, and so he likes to say, a quantum computer gets its prodigious power by harnessing its siblings in the um, in parallel universes, and they are prodigiously powerful. So he takes that as proof that these parallel universes exist. Anyway, the beginnings of infinity is an optimistic book in which first he presents a very complicated idea, and that is that humans are infinite. And what he means is, um, you know, okay, so we're intelligent. And there's a theory that we run into this extraterrestrial life form, and it is so much more intelligent than us that we can't understand what it's doing any more than our dog can understand quantum theory. You know, dogs are intelligent. They have a sense of what's going on. Uh, they have theories of how things work. I always wonder what a dog thinks of an elevator. <laughs> but anyway, uh, they don't seem to be freaked by them. Uh, but we are so much more intelligent than dogs or cats or ants. Not so sure about birds. We're beginning to discover they're pretty smart. But anyway... What if an extraterrestrial intelligence was equally that much more <coughs> intelligent than us? And we wouldn't be able, excuse me, <coughs> we wouldn't be able to understand their shtick any more than our dog can understand us when we're doing quantum theory. So that's a theory. And may be true, but Deutsch rejects it. And he holds that human beings have crossed the infinity threshold. In other words, given our intelligence, given the science that we've built, understanding science as not only a body of knowledge, but uh, don't even want to say a method. Remember, we were taught about the scientific method in school, and any sophisticated philosophy of science says that's baloney. But what, so what is science? And maybe the most cogent, accurate thing we can say is science is a culture. You know, it's, it's a way of being. It's a way scientists not only ask questions and do research and uh, find answers and interact in community. And uh, a key part is pop. He, David Deutsch is a big fan of Poplar. And Poplar posits 
um, ir- what is it? Refutability as key to science. A scientific statement to be science has to be refutable. So if I say, uh, along with me in this room, there are a whole bunch of little green people that are totally uh, do not relate to uh, the normal matter of this world. So my hand will go through them, sound will go through them, light goes through them, but they're here. Well, that's not a scientific statement because you can't refute it. So you've postulated in such a way that you can't disprove it, so it's meaningless. You know, it may be mystical. Uh, you might want to say you have a soul. Um, but don't try to prove it scientifically. So anyway, between the intelligence we do have and the bodies of scientific knowledge we've accumulated and the scientific methodologies and cultures that we've built, um, Deutsch feels are unlimited. We we can now do anything. It may take time, but, you know, if you're a uh, Star Trek fan, you might have remembered the one with the Dyson sphere. Uh, so Freeman Dyson hypothecated that a Type 1 civilization will use all of its planet's energy for intelligent activity, and a Type 2 civilization will use all of its solar system's energy for intelligent activity. So, but if you look at a diagram of the solar system, you can see that, pick a number, 99.9999, etc., percent of the sun's energy radiates off in all directions, and only the tiniest portion reaches the Earth, even though it's enough to power all of our electrical needs by solar energy when we get when we get everything up and running, it's still not enough for really serious, you know, when you want to start building new universes and stuff. You need to get a rest of that energy. Well, the way you do that is you take a planet like Jupiter, dismantle it, and use it to build a big sphere that totally surrounds the sun. Then you'll capture all of its energy. <laughs> on the inner surface of your sphere. So that's called a Dyson sphere because it was worked out by Freeman Dyson, who, I was just reading a profile of him. He's like 95 or something like that, still alive. You know, he was someone who worked with Einstein, had Einstein's chair at Princeton Institute for Advanced Studies. And uh, so he's quite a a remarkable figure, and so are his his children. But anyway... uh, so Dyson is a favorite figure of, <clears throat> shall we say, far-out science buffs. Dyson worked on what's called Project Orion. Isn't it great? You can just go to Wikipedia now and look up. What's Lobel talking about? Project Orion. Put Project Orion on Wikipedia. This is a project by the Navy to build spacecraft powered by atom bombs. <laughs> you make this big spacecraft— and you put an atom bomb under it. Now, why it doesn't evaporate the spacecraft, but it pushes it. And, well, wouldn't it push it so hard it would flatten all the people inside? Well, you put a big shock absorber on it. <laughs> and a big pusher plate with the shock absorbers. So they were actually designing this with a plan to building it in the 
early 1960s. It was a Navy project. Freeman Dyson is one of the key scientists on the project. And it got stopped when Kennedy signed the Atmospheric Test Ban Treaty. So we agreed with the Russians and everybody else. No more tests in the atmosphere. You could do underground tests, but no more tests in the atmosphere. Well, that meant you couldn't fly the spacecraft. Now, if you could get it out into space, far away from the Earth, by chemical means, and then start doing this, uh, that was still possible. But that really, that didn't, the math didn't work. Uh, now, they have been designing, uh, it's, uh, I forget the name of it, it's another project, where they would use several hundred hydrogen bombs. And those would be able to propel the spacecraft at speeds where you could start to cross the galaxy, not just zip around the solar system, but go to other places in the galaxy. Not that yet there yet were how you'd get to a neighboring galaxy, because um, that'd take a couple billion years. But uh, to get around the solar system in decades or to get around the galaxy in hundreds of years, this might be how they're going to do it. So anyway... That's a long digression. Uh, how did I get from Freeman Dyson from um, from uh, David Deutsch's uh, beginning of infinity? But anyway, Deutsch's attitude is we can do anything. It might take a while, but there's no limit to, the, you know, you think of we we're right down to understanding quarks. And quarks are, what, the size of Planck lengths? And Planck lengths are the things the size of, you know, they like to say, um, if a quark, how do they put it? Anyway, if you uh, blew a walnut up to the size of the galaxy, a quark would still be a billion times smaller than the walnut or something like that. Anyway, so we're we're playing around with single photons. Uh, we're understanding, I mean, when they start talking about what gases are in the atmosphere of some planet they're looking at in another star. I mean, have they talked about planets in other galaxies? I'm not sure. But uh, yeah, how they do that? So if we don't, uh, how to put it, blow ourselves up or otherwise send ourselves back to, uh, quote-unquote, the caves, Deutsch thinks that there's um, um, infinity is, as Bud Lightyear puts it, to infinity and beyond. Now, I have a disagreement with these, these um, let's call them materialists. And that is, there's a notion of, you know, we've made this progress and it's going to keep going. And... I'm, as I said at the beginning of the show, I'm a Spenglerian. And I think that, uh, no, um, uh, cultures have a life cycle or an arc of a life cycle. And there's a point where, um, eh, you know, it starts to run out of energy. So, well, how can it do that? Well, it's... um, you know how do we uh, how do we value what do we value, and you start seeing well I described earlier 
the attacks on Pinker and his optimism, and a lot of them were attacks on science. Science is under attack and from a lot of quarters and could be shut down. You know, people, you remember we, we went to the moon, we visited a half a dozen times, and then they said, okay, no more, we're not going to do that. And now it's up to uh, individual entrepreneurs like Bezos and um, what's his name? Tesla. To, uh, to actually go to the moon or go to Mars. And we're relying on them. But in terms of a common will, I'm not sure that common will is there. So wrapping up, a couple more books. I'm uh, just looking. What I did was I printed out um, I printed out a bunch of I printed out my library from Audible where my audio books are. Um, oh, here's a really cool one: Zero to One Notes on Startups or How to Build the Future. And interesting, I try not to let politics bother me. So this is a book by Peter Thiel who is a famous venture capitalist and infamous for backing Trump, but I don't know where he stands now. But <clears throat> putting that aside, he's an interesting VC. So he comes from this background as a, uh, as a lawyer. And he's got a really great way of seeing things. You know, he, he considers education. He says, is education a... Uh, a luxury or an investment? You know, do you go to college for four years to enjoy yourself, whether it's partying or reading, um, or because it's going to give you a better future? It's an investment. And he says, I think it's neither. I think it's insurance. That you could do a lot better than going to college. Um, you know, I like to say, if if a young person comes to you and says, I've got four years and $100,000. What should I do? Yeah, maybe there are better things to do than go to college for four years. But uh, if you don't, you're taking a risk. Do you want to take that risk? You know, suppose you want to say, instead, I'm going to become an entrepreneur. Okay. What percent of entrepreneurial ventures make it? Some make it very big. Most probably don't make it at all. So are you one do you want to take that risk or do you want to go to a top college and then go to get an MBA and then go to work for McKinsey or a law firm? And so that's how Peter Thiel sees college. And actually he's the one who set up the Thiel Foundation to if a kid is interested in dropping out of college, the Teal Foundation will support him <laughs> while he's working on whatever idea he or she has. But anyway, uh, Zero to One, this book is about how uh, it's relatively, it's not easy, but relatively easy to go from a successful company to a super successful company, but to go from zero, nothing, to just the first million, as they like to put it, is really hard. So uh, how do you do that? So he did a course 
at Stanford on that. And one of the students recorded the course and got together with him to create this book. And one of the things in this book that um, the single most valuable thing, and there's lots in there of value. I've read it two or three times. It's really, uh, really a terrific um, Really a terrific investment of something to read. But his favorite question is, what do you believe that almost nobody else believes? In other words, you come to him and you say, because he's a venture capitalist, you get your 20 minutes and you say, here's my idea. I want to open a restaurant. He says, yeah, so are a million other people. You got anything original in mind? Because restaurants are unbelievably competitive. Oh, one of the things he advocates is monopolies. In other words, don't do something where you compete with everyone else and you're driven to a low price. Don't open one more pizza place. But open a, a – do a business that no one else is doing so you can dominate it. But anyway, so his favorite question is, what do you believe that nobody else believes or almost nobody else believes? And so uh, let's wrap up with that. Let's keep it in mind for next week. And this is John LaBelle. This is Visionaries. We're here every Monday on the Progressive Radio Network, 10 a.m. New York time, whatever time you're part of the world. See you next week. 